What's up, guys? It's John Lee, Grow Pastor down at Gateway in South Austin. We're out here asking the public what their favorite spots in town are. Let's go. It's John on the street. Hey, I'm out here with Kimberly. How's it going, Kimberly? Hey, it's great. Thank you so much. So, got a couple questions for you. What is your favorite barbecue spot in Austin? Rebel Cheese. They have versions of barbecue. Like, anything that you can think of that you wouldn't be able to order as a vegan or vegetarian, you can order there and safely consume the entire thing. Favorite barbecue? I'm going with Blacks. Blacks. Terry Blacks, the legend. What's your favorite barbecue spot in Austin? Um, I would have to say Don's Barbecue on 969. It's a little underrated. What do you like to get at Don's? Oh, man, they got everything. Um, their breakfast tacos are really good. Barbecue sandwiches are really good. You can buy the meat by the pound. The Rudy's is pretty good. Rudy's a solid, solid. Uh, Pokey Joe's house is pretty good right there, too. What about favorite barbecue in Austin? Maybe Slab Barbecue. I like the ribs at Lauro on Sunday and Monday. Loro's. Give me some. That's what I'm talking about. Loro's is the bomb. Baby Black's barbecue. Black's. Love it. Love it. Oh, here. Absolutely. True barbecue. True barbecue. It's pretty good. Saying it just because I'm posted here. It's because it's good. So whether it's eating your favorite breakfast taco, paddleboarding out on Ladybird Lake, hanging out at Zilker Park, or checking out that new hip coffee shop, we all have different ideas on how to have the best summer ever. But you know, to actually have a great summer, you don't have to, say, visit that perfect vacation spot that you can post on your Instagram or even cross off items off of your bucket list. Having a truly special and meaningful summer looks like having great life-enriching conversations with friends, spending quality time with your family and loved ones, getting to know a neighbor or a coworker a little bit better, even doing random acts of kindness for people you don't know. We actually see this kind of lifestyle in the very first church. Check this out. In the book of Acts, God's people have just witnessed the life-changing and miraculous event of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And they're just so blown away and taken back by what they just saw and experienced, so touched by the love and forgiveness of God, that this just bubbles up and spills out into the community around them. And when the church today lives this way, we actually show the world that the church, in fact, it's not a building. It's a people, a people who have been transformed by Jesus and his love and who are living a life out of gratitude and a life of loving and serving others. This week, we learn how to love one another. So I'm thinking about the best summer ever. And maybe just the way I'm wired, many of you are wired like me, I go directly to my worst summer ever. <laughs> just have a negative bent sometimes about things. And so I want you to go with me to uh, the summer of 1995. I know, 28 years ago. It was about this time. And uh, I'm a, it's, I just finished my freshman year of college. And so I'm, I, I you know, took a bunch of hours. I'm, you know, I, I, like to, I like to do that. I took, I took 18 hours in the fall, 21 hours in the spring. My dad said if I got a 4.0, he'd pay for all of college. So I got the 4.0. I worked really hard. I'm really ready for the summer. I'm going to have a great time. I have all these plans to just let loose and party it up. I don't know Jesus. I mean, I know who Jesus is. I don't believe in Jesus at this point. And uh, I'm just ready for a few months of just hanging out with my friends, doing my thing. 
And all of a sudden, my parents let me know the week I'm home for my first summer, we're leaving. Oh, where are you going? We're going to Europe and Australia for a couple of months. That's awesome. I get the house to myself. No, we're going to leave your 12-year-old brother with you. Excuse me? My little 12-year-old brother, the kid, little brother, is. I mean, I'm 18 years old. I'm basically a full-grown adult now. And I'm going to hang out with a 12-year-old? And they're like, yeah. And not only that, they gave me some parameters. Three things I had to do. Number one, I had to pay the bills. That was my responsibility. I'd already started doing it in high school, helped my parents out. No big deal. They gave me money. I'm pretty good with money. Handled it well. They gave me all the money for the summer, how to pay everything. I was good to go. Now, look, I feel a little bit better about this. Uh, Number two, I had to make sure my brother was fed. They knew me well enough to like, you've got to make sure he eats every day. Now, they didn't tell me how many times a day. So most days it was once. When he was like, I'm so hungry, crying on the floor. Fine, I'll get you some cereal. And the third thing was I had to take him to church every Sunday. A place I had not been to in a really long time. I was like, oh, I know what my parents are doing. They want me to believe in Jesus. So they want me to go to church every weekend. So this is the whole scheme, right? For me to go to church on Sundays. And and I really hated it because I felt alone. I mean, all my, all my friends were doing their thing. Like, well, hey, why don't you do this and do this? I'm like, nah, I got my brother. I don't even like him. I don't even know if it's my brother or not, you know. We, we were cruel to my little brother. My little brother growing up looked Asian. And so whenever the television was on, we would say, you see that lady on the television? Her name is Connie Chung. She's your real mom. So for years, he thought his real mom was Connie Chung and he was adopted into our family. We were just awful. My brother and I, my middle brother, were awful to our baby brother. And now I have to make sure that he's alive when my parents come back from Australia. So I hung out with him and it was awful. For about two weeks, it was just the worst thing ever. And I just put him through so much. My parents had given me all this money, but we had this container full of change. And I told him, he was just complaining about wanting to eat. And I said, you know what, you want to eat? you got to count all those coins. But mom and dad gave you cash. That's the money they left for you. <laughs> so it took him a couple days to roll up all the pennies and the quarters. He finally got done. He was so happy. I said, now you've got to go buy food with that. So I made him carry a bag with the roll of pennies and quarters and go into like a McDonald's and buy his food with it. Well, I have green dollars. I was just awful. I was taking out my anger and my worst summer ever on my little brother. And one day I just said, I'm not going to let this be the worst summer ever. So I took him to places I probably should not have taken a 12-year-old. So he went to some pool parties with some college kids and some college girls. And he actually really liked that part. (laughs) We went to movies he should not have gone to at 12 years old. We snuck into movies, you know, we should not have snuck into. I took him to places he should not be. We found a church that I actually was like, you know what, if I have to go to church, I'm going to pick the church. So I didn't even take him to his home church. I took him to a different church in a different community. He memorized lyrics to music a 12-year-old should not know. And he got so good at it, I took him to a festival. Yes, a festival. 
a weekend festival at 12 years old and had this big contest for the weekend. And guess who won the contest with thousands of people there? My 12-year-old brother. Because I did him the favor of introducing him to good music. And we built a bond that summer. See, my brother and I didn't have a relationship that, before then. I was seven years older. Not that it was a lot, but I was just living my own life. And he would even tell you this now. I don't remember you much growing up. But the first time he remembers me was the summer of 95. The worst summer ever turned into the best summer ever when it came to our relationship. And a lot of our stories come from that summer. I heard recently that the oldest children really make a difference in the culture of a home. They can either support the values of a family or they can erode the values of a family. And for years, I eroded because of my addiction issues, because of my sexual dysfunction. I eroded the culture of our home. And this was a summer, even though I was not a Christ follower yet, that I didn't know what God was doing. I began to build a bond with my brother to maybe restore something that I helped erode within our family. And the love we had as brothers outdid the limitations our parents had put on us. Your best summer ever is only one or two obstacles away. What limitations do you currently have? And again, we've said it before and we'll say it again. Best summer ever isn't about what you do or the experiences. you got to remember, this is a family, my family. We climb pyramids in South America. We swam some of the best beaches in the world. We had some of the best food in the world. We had created all these experiences. But you ask my brother about stories with me, and he'll point back to the summer of 95. It's not about the experiences. It's about the bonds of relationship that we built. And here we are living in a city that just broke through the top 10 in our country as far as population. And some of us are celebrating that. Yeah, we're finally in the top 10. Some of us are like, oh man, here we go. Why are we in the top 10? But it doesn't matter why or how we got here. There are almost two and a half million people in the Austin metro area. And we are still and growing to be one of the most loneliest cities in the country, if not the world. What happens to the bonds of relationships? What is it that could make your summer the best summer ever? And how do we do that living in a city where many of us lack human touch or human interaction? I remember it was my, my first few months here before COVID hit, and I, and I was out in the courtyard talking to somebody, and I, was, I had talked to them three weekends in a row, decided to them, and gave them a little side hug. And one weekend, this, this young lady looked at me, and she goes, you know, most weeks because I work from home, you're one of the only people I ever talk to. A little 10-second interaction. She goes, sometimes you're the only person I talk to all week. And I wonder how many of us live like that. How many of us work with people like this? How many of us have children who are isolated in their bedrooms and live a life like this. How many of us, this is the dream. We think it's the dream for everybody to leave us alone. And it's the introvert's heaven. Until you have a situation where you're missing the affection. And you're missing the love. And we're missing the support. And it becomes our own personal hell. And nobody even knows. 
See, the antidote to loneliness, to isolation, to not enjoying your life is love. And we're going to break that down here in a second because our world tells us that kind of love is this romantic love. Like you have this horrible life and you hate your job and all of a sudden you walk in a coffee shop and you meet the man of your dreams and it's just like a Hallmark movie after that. You move to a city you didn't want to move to and then you meet this girl that helps you, you know, forgive all the past relationships and this girl now heals your soul and you get married one day as though marriage is the ultimate dream. As though another person can actually heal our soul. And many of us, if you are married, many of us got married as broken people with this assumption because our, our culture tells us this will happen, that you're going to make a movie of your life and now we have two broken people together who are sometimes helping break each other even more. Marriage does not solve the issue of loneliness. Let me tell you something about marriage for those of you who aren't married, which is about half of us. I tell this to people when we do premarital counseling. Marriage just magnifies 10 times over whatever you're already dealing with as a single person. Marriage magnifies it. And the wedding process pacifies it. You ever been to a wedding? And you're sitting there like, this is, this is awful. I'm a cynical person by nature. Thank you for Jesus, right? I try to see the world different. But sometimes I'm sitting there at a wedding and I'm like, how, how long are these people going to last? <laughs> You're a pastor. You shouldn't think that way. I'm also a realist. One time I saw this older group of ladies, and I say older, I mean, I'm getting older, but they're probably 75, 80. There's about four of them. And uh, they didn't think anybody could hear them at the wedding. And I think something was wrong with the hearing aids or something. Because everybody could hear them at the wedding. And the four of them were like, it was almost like a movie. They were like placing bets on when they were going to get divorced. And one of them was the grandmother of the bride. And I was like, this is awesome. But how many of us actually have those thoughts? Because another person and relationship and the idea of what it means to not be lonely is a farce. It's when we talk about what love is in a biblical sense that we begin to understand how we combat loneliness and isolation and not enjoying the life that we have. So what does God say about this? What does God say about loneliness and, and loving one another and what that means? And so this phrase, one another, is what we're going to talk about the next few weeks because in Scripture, there, there's a lot of Scriptures that help us to say, blank one another, love one another, submit to one another, honor one another. And we're going to take some of those most quoted one another's over the next few weeks, and we're going to talk about those. And this week is love one another. And that phrase one another is used a hundred times in the New Testament. In 47 different verses and a hundred times, the word one another. In Greek, it's just one word. Alelon. Alelon is one word, one another. What does that mean? And so what we've done is, because there's so much to break down, if you go to Digging Deeper this week, and just it's that resource we have, it's on our homepage at gatewaychurch.com, go all the way to the bottom, 
click digging deeper. And we have some cool graphics on there that help you break down this phrase one another and scripturally where they're at. All right, so just know that. But the New Testament of the Bible is written in Koine Greek. And uh, there are four different words for the word love in Koine Greek. There's actually multiple words, but four that are really used over and over. And sometimes language is limiting. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes language is limiting. Like in English, we say, I love you, and then we assume what the other person means by that. How can you say you love me? You don't even know me. Well, how come you don't tell me you love me enough? And we talk about this word love, but it, it doesn't really sometimes really express what we're trying to express. It doesn't help us describe what's in our heart. Like in Spanish, you can say te amo, te quiero, te adoro. You can say these phrases that have, and it's all about how you say it, right? In a lot of languages, romantic languages, is what is your face saying? What is your body saying? Am I close to you? Am I invading your bubble? Right, these phrases that come with it. Does it is it followed by a kiss? Is it followed by a hug? And in English, sometimes it is limiting, so it's helped us to understand this word love. We're going to go to the Greek. It helps us tie it to Scripture. And there's four kinds of love. There's storge, which is an empathetic bond of affection. Almost like a parent with a child or a sibling. It's this bond of affection. And a lot of times it can refer to like uh, your, 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 uh, your childhood. Things that happen in your formation as a person. And so sometimes this word can even be used for people like me, people like you, who grew up where a sports team was part of your family. For me, it's Michigan. Some of you, it's the University of Texas or whatever, Boston Red Sox or, you know, Dallas Cowboys. And sometimes if you're not into those things, you're like, these people are weird. Like, all they talk about is Dallas Cowboys. All they talk about is sports. All they talk about is Michigan. Aren't you just sick of it? But because the love we have comes from this bond. It's this thing that happens as we grow up and we wrap our experiences around it, and usually it's in another person or embodied in a sports team or the state you live in. I mean, some of you are from Texas, and some of you will never leave Texas. There's a big difference. That's the kind of love. Number two is phileo. It's the bond of friendship or brotherly love, a.k.a. Philadelphia, phileo, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And the, what I want you to understand here is with phileo, it's this understanding in this filter that we are equals. We're not above one another. We see each other as equals. So there's times that when we're advocating for one another, when we work alongside one another, when we're working with our neighbors or our friends or our coworkers, or you're advocating for a child in your elementary school or your high school, there's this phileo, I am seeing you as an equal. We are siblings. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And then there's the more common eros, which is the root for erotic, so it can be romantic love, being in love, and it can grow into physical and sexual erotic love. And a lot of times, especially for men, when we are, or actually all of us, when our wires get crossed and somebody says love, it goes to a physical erotic description of the word love. So many times, 
As a pastor, I try to help people rewire that word. So a lot of you, I'll tell you, I love you. I care for you. And sometimes I'll get somebody look at me and they're like, stay away. Stay away. And you know me, it just makes me want to get closer. I love you. Because it isn't all erotic. Just because somebody looks at you and says, I love you, doesn't mean they want to be with you in that way. And who are you anyway that everybody's attracted to you? Come on, get over yourself. I'm everybody's type. No, you're not. Then the last one is agape. Agape love. And it's unconditional godly love. It's a reflection of a character. It's a characteristic. It's agape love. And so when we're challenged in Scripture to forgive one another, to love one another, it's this unconditional love. It doesn't mean there aren't boundaries. It doesn't mean somebody can just run over you. But our, our posture is that I'm going to love you in spite of how you treat me. It's something that you also see sometimes in parenting. Or sometimes if you're an aunt or an uncle or you have family members that you're having to forgive 70 times 7 every single day. It's this really this word anchored in who God is. This agape love. And so, so here's an example. John 13, verse 34 through 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love or agape one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you agape, if you love one another. There's a big difference when you go on social media and you begin to talk about people on social media and you begin to say things out there for everybody to see, and it lacks a tone of compassion or forgiveness. And it's about selfishness, where agape is about the other. And how did Jesus love us? How does he model this for us? Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love, his agape, for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still far, while we didn't even know who Christ was, before we even believed in who Jesus was, he died for us. He did it in a proactive way. Agape is a proactive way of looking at things. You ever done this? You're going to work, you're going to school, you're going into an argument with a parent or your loved one or, you know, your children, and you already know, listen, if they say this one thing, I'm going off on them. If they say this one thing, I'm quitting. If they say this one thing, you're just going in, and you are already going in reactive. Agape, a godly love, goes in proactive. You know what? They might say this, so I'm going to plan to have this reaction in love. They might do this, and so I'm going to plan to, to smother them with love and kindness. I still might quit, but I'm not going to be famous and recorded on video as I leave the office. See, you can still do the things you need to do, but do we have a heart and a mindset that's proactive, anticipating, and then preparing our hearts for the right reaction? That was Christ for us. 
knowing we would not believe in him, knowing that we might reject him, he still had an agape towards us, and he still went to the cross. Verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. Read a lot of scripture here, but this is good for you, right? Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the early church we're talking about in this series and how their mindset and their proactive mindset was. And to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The primary expression that this early church had was love was their overwhelming acceptance of one another. It was the primary ethos, the ethic by which they lived their life, was we are going to love people. And everything they did was through the filter of love. Why? Because they knew while they were still sinners, while they were still rejecting Christ, when they all walked away from Jesus while he's dying on a cross, he rose from the dead, called them back, and restored them and modeled for them. Even though you rejected me and left me alone, I still call you friends. Can we model that? You ever been watching a show or heard a story and somebody does something and you're like, oh, if somebody did that to me, I could never forgive them. If my husband cheated on me, I could never forgive him. If my parents ever got divorced, I would never talk to them again. If my this, if my that, and you have these things. And what we're doing is called self-defense. We're building a self-defense mechanism, and a love in Christ breaks it down into, you know what, it's not about me. I have a confidence in who I am in Christ that I can take on all of these situations. When my confidence grows in Christ... My confidence in myself diminishes. So they did this lifestyle. How were they devoted to God? They taught about God everywhere they went. They prayed. They were sent out into relationships to be in relationship with other people. And they were willing to trust God and sacrifice for others. It reminds me of growing up as a kid. You know, grew up in Uvalde, Texas as a little kid. Um, and, you know, our church was filled with a lot of migrant workers and people who, who were farmers and people who were just blue-collar. And every time my dad, as the pastor, we would have a potluck dinner, right? And uh, as a kid, I loved it because there was all this great Mexican food, and it was awesome, and you could pick all the great things, and people enjoyed it. But now as an adult, I look back, and it wasn't just another meal. These people who lived isolated lives in the margins of society were not just cooking their favorite dish at their church potluck. You know what they were doing? They were building bonds of relationship with one another. They were saying, I'm not alone in my plight. I'm not alone. I don't have to live alone. I might be on a farm. I might be picking the things I'm picking, and it looks like I'm by myself, and I'm getting underpaid because I'm illegal in this country, and all the politics that go around that. And yet when they came together with other people whose eyes are fixed on Jesus, they were fully human. 
And sometimes, if not all the time, we need to feel like we're human. And how were they devoted to one another? They gathered in the temple courts with each other. They shared meals in their home, and they had fellowship. Fellowship's this great word that I used to always think of, this, this language, right? This potluck fellowship. If you grew up in church, you might have heard that word fellowship. We're going to have fellowship with one another. And for me, that just meant fellowship is there's going to be food. I mean, who has a party and doesn't have food? Everybody has food. We're going to graduation parties this weekend. There's food everywhere. I'm telling myself to have self-control. I can't help it. I'm fellowshipping. But it's not about the food. It's about the togetherness. And our cause of Christ brings hope to humanity. And his name is Jesus. How are they devoted to one another in this passage? They, they, they gathered again. They, they sacrificed. They, they had fellowship. But this word sacrifice really stands out to me. They sacrificed for one another. They met the needs of each other. And these miracles begin to take place. Where do you see miracles happening in your life? Where are you partaking in a modern day miracle? Where are you saying, how can God use me to make a difference? And you have to remember, as they were growing in the early church, this is the first people in all of humanity who believed that God was incarnate, came to the earth, was born as a baby, raised up, was perfect, died for us, was then raised from the dead. And in all this belief, for the first people on earth to believe this, people could have thought they were crazy and were rejected. But instead, because of this overwhelming sense of love and togetherness and brotherhood and sisterhood, it drew in people. And it was because of their love. It wasn't because of their belief. It wasn't because they were smart. It was because they, over, they overcame the obstacles that divide people and they created miraculous relationships. I experienced a miracle last week. There's this lady in my neighborhood who I don't think she likes me. I think I know she, does, she doesn't like me. I've said hi to her, no exaggeration, 50 times. She has looked at me in the eye at least 45 of those and just keeps walking. It's always on a walk. It's the only time I see her. And my wife makes fun of me every time. She's like, she hates you. What did you do to her? I was like, I don't, I don't know. So one day, <laughs> this is awful. One day I went by and I got low. She's, she's a little shorter than me. So I went, hi, just to make sure she could see me. And she walked right by me. I was like, okay. Kind of gave up. But every time I see her, I still say hi. We like walk at the same time. I think she thinks I'm stalking her. I might be at this point. I want her to like me. Last week on Monday, she looked at me and she smiled. I literally stopped in my tracks. I looked at my wife and said, did you see that? Was that just me? She said, no, she smiled at you. The next time I saw her, she smiled, put her hand up. I said, like, oh, this is working. This is awesome. And every time I see her, it's getting better and better. By next week, we're going to be hugging. We're going to be friends. It's going to be awesome. But you know, here's, here's why it's a miracle. I know she's part of an immigrant family. And I know that there are cultural norms I may not know. And I have to respect that. And yet somehow in the last year, something happened last week. We're going to be friends. 
And this last time, the worst thing happened. My wife's like, you better forget this. I saw the house she walked out of. I know where she lives. Oh, my gosh. I might just drop off cookies or drop off something. And my wife's like, stop it, honey. Just do what you're doing. Just be loving. Be normal. I said, well, I don't know what that means. So, you know, teach me. But it was a sort of a miracle. And how many miracles can we experience if we just love people consistently? Sometimes it's just a smile is all people need. Sometimes people just need to be seen. People were intrigued by this early church's love for one another. And a great cause helps build a great community. So what can we do about this? You're going to hear more about this, but we've encouraged everybody at Gateway to do the Bless Challenge. It's up on the screen. You're going to hear more about it at the end of service. Bless your neighbor. Read a chapter from the book of Acts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. The videos are awesome. I'm telling you, the videos are awesome every day to encourage you and challenge you on your way and look for ways to bless your neighbor. And let me tell you what our world needs. Three things. Our world needs your service. Our world needs for you to make a difference in it. It needs for you to do all things that many of you already do. You bring groceries to our Feed the Community Pantry. You come serve and feed the community. You're helping in, the, in our community. You're helping with Mission Hope. You're helping with the Refugee Network. You see this last week? Uh, Allianz and Austin help oversee that. We're on the news this week because of the, what the difference they're making in our refugees. They represent our church really well on the news because of what we already do. But you know it's not enough. Last week alone, we had 25 families on top of what we're already doing ask for help. They need our service. Number two, our world needs our generosity. What does generosity look like for you? I don't know. Maybe it's helping a neighbor, you know, as, as they, if they can't reach something. I had, last year, I had to, our neighbor said, I can't reach something in my garage. Can you help me? These two older women, I was like, yes, I will help you. Got on the ladder, did it for them. It took me five minutes. But if I wasn't careful when I pulled up and I saw them waving at me and act like I didn't see them, I could have missed out. Just five minutes of being generous. Number three, our world needs our voice. The world needs you to speak up for it. The world needs you to advocate for it. The world needs you to use your God-given ability wherever you might be, whether it's financial, whether it's because you have political clout, or because you have influence in a particular sector, to actually do something with that influence to make a difference. The world needs your voice at the tip of your tongue should always be Jesus. But don't give an empty Jesus without generosity. Don't give an empty Jesus without sacrifice. Don't give an empty Jesus and just say, well, I'm just praying for you. Be the miracle that somebody else is praying for. You just never know. If we ever truly change the world around us, it will require a love greater than our limitations. We can look at our limitations, we can look at what divides us and just see it for what it is, or we can see the limitations and let our love build a bridge over those limitations. God, give us eyes to see beyond what the world says divides us and give us a heart to do something about it. Let's love one another, the love that is relentless, that is encompassing of all of love. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much. Thank you for a love that is deep and rich. 
Yes, there is an agape love that comes from you. But God, there's, there's a sorge love, a parental, motherly love that you have for us. God, if we are all created in your image, then, then some of the aspects of us as humans, especially as women or as mothers or as maternal instincts, come from you. You embody these things as well. So help us, God, to not be afraid of the word love and to activate actually living it out in others, starting in our own homes, to the places we have influence, and around the world. Use us. We commit to being people with hands that are open, eyes that are open, and a life that has a disposition to make a difference in others. To not be reactive, but to be proactive in the way we live. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.